Welcome to the Nature Photography Podcast, brought to you by ImageLight.com. I'm Terry Vanderheiden, 30-year professional photographer and your host for this season of the Nature Photography Podcast. When you decide to go out to photograph wildlife, there are a few things that you need to consider. First is your camera. Does it have enough frames per second to capture wildlife in motion? How does it handle high ISO in the low light times of the day? Early morning, late afternoon when wildlife is most active. How large is your camera's burst? Meaning how many frames can you fire off before your camera says, eh, wait a minute, I have to load all these files to the card. Having a large burst can make the difference between getting a shot or missing the shot. You have to also consider your lens. If you're going after birds, do you have a long enough lens? Typically, a 400 millimeter to 800 millimeter is standard issue when it comes to photographing birds. Is your lens fast enough? Does your lens have enough light gathering capabilities to make quality captures in low light? Most photographers are using 400 millimeter 2.8s or 600 4.0s. How sturdy is your tripod? Do you have a gimbal head to make life easier to move your camera and lens combo around while it's attached to the tripod? When photographing wildlife, there are many, many factors that need consideration. That's why good results are so rewarding. Most photographers are thinking of all the technical concepts that are needed for wildlife, but there is one overriding factor that you need that you have to have to be successful. The one, I would say without a doubt, the most important piece of the puzzle of shooting wildlife is, wait for it now, the wildlife itself. Yes, if you go out to shoot wild animals in their natural surroundings, you have to have the wildlife. You have to find the wildlife. That's the foremost need in wildlife photography, right? Okay, I found this past week the place to go for shooting raptors. Eagles, hawks, and owls are all in one place. Now, if you're not near California, I apologize, but it will still be worth the trip for you. The place is the Lower Klamath Wildlife Refuge. This is located near the border where Oregon and California meet. The nearest city is a small town of Doris. When we went, we stayed in Klamath Falls, Oregon, about 30 miles north of the refuge. The way to get to this glorious place is Interstate 5. 5 goes all the way from Mexico all the way up to the Canada border, along the way splitting California in two vertically. Once near the top of the state, you're going to take Highway 97 north. When you start seeing signs for Klamath Falls, Look for the state route 161. Once on 161, be ready to photograph. To give you an idea, this trip takes about six hours from the San Francisco Bay Area. The time of year is important, I'm told, but in our case, we went in the second week of January. Apparently, from December to February, the bald eagles come down to take advantage of the food sources that are plentiful at this location during this window of time. I'm sure it would be a wonderful place to visit all year, but if you're looking for eagles, go in January. Highway 161 is fantastic for several reasons. First, it's not very busy. Yes, a few trucks go whizzing by and some local and tourist traffic, but really it's very, very light, at least in early January it was. This is important because you'll be pulling over often to photograph many species of raptors right there on the road. 
The first thing you might notice is that there are very few tall trees on State Route 161. Just a few telephone poles over the first mile or so, and then nothing at all. It's this aspect that makes driving it with a camera so much fun. Red-tailed hawks and rough-legged hawks perch up on the tallest thing that they can get to to keep an eye out for their next meal. This happens to be only road signs that are seldom over six feet tall. This means that if you're stealthy, you can drive right up to one of these hawks and photograph them right out your window. You can park and wait for action to come to you or drive around and find it. There are a few tall trees along this highway and occasionally you'll find bald eagles perched in them. You can tell it's a bald eagle from quite a ways away due to their size. And of course, their white head. While we did find and photograph some eagles along the side of the road of 161, there's even a better place to find eagles right there in the reserve, which I'll tell you about a little later in the show. If you're listening to this podcast, you're likely into photography. Coincidentally, so am I. I'm Terry Vanderheiden, full-time professional photographer. Not only do I create photographs for a living, I do photography just for fun. In my spare time, I also teach photography classes and workshops. If you'd like to find out more about what I offer, check out my website at imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T.com. You can also find some videos I've created over on YouTube. Just search for Terry Vanderheiden or search for uh, how to use a monopod and you can find me that way. Feel free to email me if you have any questions on the topics I cover in this podcast or suggestions on how I can improve it. If you like this podcast, please give it a star rating and maybe even a quick review so others can find it easier. It would be great if you could share this podcast with other friends who might have an interest in photography. I'd really appreciate it. And thanks again for listening. The Lower Klamath Wildlife Refuge is broken up into two parts, the Lower Klamath area and the Thule Lake Refuge. When we first heard about this area for photography, we, we heard about blinds that were in place for wildlife viewing and photography. The rules were pretty simple. You could reserve a blind and you'd have to get into place inside the blind before sunrise. Then when you left the blind during the day, you couldn't return. This is designed to keep the comings and goings in and out of the blinds to a minimum. As it turned out, there were no more reservations to be made, and some of the blinds have been removed. The blinds that are there were only found on Thule Lake. Thule Lake is a wide, flat area where parts of the lake is home to many, you guessed it, Thule's. You can take a driving trip on a light gravel road around the lake, and you're likely to see blue herons, some harriers working in the canals, and some other waterfall. We believe that the waterfall population increases here later in the year, but again, I can only speak for early January. We did spot a couple of bald eagles over in this area, but truthfully, the backgrounds were not as nice as over at the Lower Klamath Refuge. You can get some good shots of waterfowl flying low over the Thule's, and that's about as good as it gets for backgrounds. The Thule Lake area is also quite a bit more windswept than the Lower Klamath Refuge, so it's not as comfortable on a cool winter afternoon. The winter light is also a big bonus this time of year. While most wildlife shooting is done early morning, usually from dawn until about an hour after sunrise, 
and late in the afternoon about an hour before sunset until the sun is actually gone. But in winter, it's a different story. The sun travels pretty low in the sky and even on a cloudless day, the light can be excellent from sunrise at say 7.30 up to about 10.30 or so. And then it gets good again around 2.30 in the afternoon and stays good until sunset at around 10 to five. So the windows for photographing wildlife in winter are much longer. During the high sun parts of the day, we would travel around and look for nests and signs of raptors in the area. In one spot we stopped, I came across a black, slick looking charcoal briquette thing sitting on a wood railing. This railing was for one of the water overlooks that was built for wildlife viewing. This slightly slender briquette was unusual, so I asked one of my other photographers who came on the journey what it was. My other friend, David Bozick, is also a wildlife photographer, but he likes to refer to himself as a wildlife enthusiast. As much as he knows about wildlife photography, he's even more knowledgeable in the behaviors of wildlife itself. So I asked him about the black briquette that I found and he whipped out his pocket knife, cut it open, and showed me what was on the inside. Most people call these an owl pellet. They're actually, all raptors uh, will cough up a pellet and what it is, it's the food that they can't digest. They keep it in their crop and then it comes up as a pellet instead of passing all the way through at, with the rest of the materials that get digested and come out the other end. What we find is when we're out exploring and I'm out looking for raptors to photograph, I will look for various perches and I will look underneath the perches um, searching to see if there are pellets there. If there are, that indicates to me that somewhere the raptors feeding around here, it's coming here, and especially owls, because you can't find them at night often. Uh, and then during the daytime, they're re really well hidden. But if you find uh, the perch, you can look underneath, you find these owl pellets. And if you look and you see in this owl pellet, there's a skull from a rodent that it had been feeding on. And also there's uh, bits and pieces that you can, there's a shoulder blade in here and uh, femur and, and some other parts, rib bones, and as well as it's always encased in fur. Uh, if you find it that's been feeding on, let's say snakes, it'll have scales and, and that kind of thing on the outside. So it, it's a really kind of a, it's a fascinating kind of hobby. There's people that study that, but it also, it really helps when you're trying to locate, especially uh, nocturnal uh, raptors. When you're out looking for wildlife to photograph, knowing as much as you can about your subject will improve your chances of getting good images. In this case, we knew there were owls that came to this area from seeing the owl pellets. Next was the challenge of trying to find them during the day when we knew they'd be hard to find. Owls by nature are nocturnal hunters. Where the hawks and eagles bed down for the night, the owls are just beginning its day, finding food. Too bad for the mice and other small rodents because the owl is a very stealthy hunter. What we knew so far was that there were indeed owls in the area. We know that they're very likely catching up on their sleep from working the night shift. We also know that common to the area were great horned owls. This we found out when we visited the nature center to learn more about the area we wanted to photograph. This was done our first evening into town to make sure we were ready for the next few days of shooting. One afternoon, we paid special attention to the tan, dense trees that covered some of the marsh areas. Since we knew the great horned owl was the same coloring as these trees, we figured that this would be a good place for the owl to roost for the day, so that he wouldn't be easily seen.
Okay, so Dave says that he sees something over in those in that thicket of bushes over there. Oh, look, look, look. All right, so what I did is I, I have my binoculars, so I'm scanning the trees to see what I found, and I just found what looks like looks like an owl. So, oh yeah, it's a it's a great horned owl. Oh, awesome. All right, but it looks like the owl is asleep. It's in the tree, and it's kind of in the crook of two branches kind of leaning up into the corner so what i'm using here is i have my tripod out i have the gimbal head on it i've got the 600 f4 with a nikon d850 and i'm pretty close uh, i can do a little cropping later with this file but uh, I'm, I'm relatively close but it's hard to tell that the that the owl is there because it blends in so well with the with the background so um Hopefully, if he opens his eyes, we'll keep an eye on this for a while and see what we can see. What we can see. I see a little bit of movement, but ah, gosh, his eyes aren't open. So, hey, look at those big yellow eyes. Oh, that's awesome. He's looking over here. Nice. Oh, that looks awesome. Just like that. Yes. Now, if we could just get him to move out to the side of the branch there, we could see him a little bit better. That would be so cool. Just to... But now continuous focus doesn't work well in this scenario because uh, there's a lot of branches. So I like to focus manually and keep my finger off the continuous motion, continuous focus. So that way, yeah, so I, I'm going to depend on myself on this shot because there's just too many branches between me and the owl. And there he goes. There oh, he's walking just a little. He's just walking out on the branch a little bit. Oh, you guys, I think he's going to take off. Uh, uh, there he goes. Yep. Wow, that was awesome. Thanks, Dave, for finding that. That was pretty cool. Uh, so we got a chance to see a great horned owl. We knew they were around here because we saw those pellets earlier, and uh, we were able to luckily track one down. So uh, that, was just, that was pretty cool. Our camera setup was like this. I had a Nikon D5 with a 300mm 2.8 lens for photographing the birds that were close to the car as we drove up, and everything else I shot with a Nikon D850 and a 600mm f4. Usually when we spotted something, we would park the truck and quietly pull the tripod out of the back, set the 600 on the Wimberly gimbal head. Since balancing those heads is super simple, we did that quickly and then used the head leveler built into my Really Right Stuff carbon fiber tripod to get the head level. That way the camera and lens would stay right where you want it without having to hold on to it. But when the animal moves, you have all the independence to move with it. Within 30 seconds, we were set up. With the freedom of movement the gimbal head gives us, we were ready. For these situations, I like to shoot in manual mode. The color balance is set, in most cases to cloudy, and I take a few test shots near the tree or the animal itself. In the case of the bald eagle, you want to make sure your exposure will not let the white bald head be overexposed. If you're using aperture preferred along with the camera's meter, I may inadvertently fool the camera meter. This is because the camera meter is trying to give us an exposure that's medium gray. When a camera is trained on a dark set of branches, the meter may think that it needs to make the exposure lighter, turning it from dark tones to medium gray. It will lighten up all the darkness of the trees and the dark feathers of the body of the bald eagle. When shooting manual, we are just setting the best exposure for the animal itself under the same lighting conditions. So using manual mode for this kind of shooting is the way to go. The eagle would sit there in a tree and you usually have plenty of time to take test shots in manual. 
when you land on exposure that looks good, but still with some texture in the white bald head, you're ready to go. Next, you need to confirm your shutter speed and ISO. I like to shoot my wildlife wide open at F4, and for flying birds, I want all the flapping feathers sharp. So I set my shutter speed on 1 3200th of a second. I then adjust my ISO to fit. As always, I want the lowest ISO I can have to keep the image quality as high as possible. After a few shots of the eagle in the tree, the waiting and anticipation begins. I like to hope for the best. I hope that the bird flies into the best light and the best direction and the best background. Most birds like to take flight into the wind, so position yourself where you can get the shots of just that. What I do is practice a few turns of the camera as if I'm following the bird. I do this to make sure that I don't have another tree in my way or a person who might be standing next to me. I practice getting that flying shot. Now I've set up the exposure, I've tested it, I practice the most likely flight pattern, so I'm ready to go. We just need the bird to take flight or interact with another bird or target his next meal. Because action shots show a lot more personality than just a bird sitting in a tree. Now, if you don't come across these birds very often, it's really cool to get them sitting in a tree. But after you've done that a few times, you want to get some action shots. For just getting the bird to take flight, watch his legs. If he's standing on one leg resting, he's likely relaxed and it's very unlikely he'll take off from that position. Birds almost always take off with two feet down. Another thing to watch for is a sudden poop. Yes, lots of birds will lighten the load before taking off. Once you see this happen, get ready. Just as you start to see them take off, starting with a slight crouch, begin shooting. Keep your continuous focus on the bird's eye and rely on your camera's autofocus. Shoot until the bird is gone or flying at an angle that's undesirable. I have plenty of hawk asses to last a lifetime, so I stop shooting when the bird is flying in that direction. As a professional photographer, there's one tool that I use just about every day. And no, it's not my camera. It's my computer. More specifically, Adobe Lightroom. I've been using Lightroom from the very beginning since it was introduced back in 2007. I've taught many photographers how to use Lightroom in my hands-on classes, as well as through online training. I feel this program is the best available for organizing my photographs so I can find a certain image among thousands that I've shot over the years. I especially like it for processing my raw photographic files. While many of my final images get some sort of treatment in Photoshop, all of my images are processed through Adobe Lightroom. All of them. My goal is to do as much image processing as I can in Lightroom first. This makes my workflow go so much faster. One of the things that makes my workflow faster are the preset brushes. I've created several myself that are built specifically for wildlife and nature photography. These brushes are easy to load, easy to use, and make developing your images faster and more creative. For listeners of this podcast, I'm offering a special collection of nature photography Lightroom preset brushes. You can use these to improve your wildlife photography and your landscape work. When you download my Lightroom brushes, you will get exclusive access to instructional videos to learn how each and every brush works and when to use them. Find out more by visiting my website, imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T dot com. Click on the podcast page and you can order them right there. When shooting at the Lower Klamath Wildlife Refuge in early January, be prepared for the cold. 
My brother Ron, who is also with us on this trip to capture video for us, is an avid outdoorsman. He's a professional fly fisherman and fly tire. In all seasons, he can be found outdoors, so he's well-versed in keeping warm in the winter. I asked him how to best prepare for the cold and possibly wet weather of this part of California at this time of year. As an outdoor enthusiast, you couldn't pick a better time in your life if you have to go out in harsh weather. Rain, snow, breathable rain gear, breathable boots, breathable waders. We've got all that, but let's talk about staying warm. One of the first things that I use to stay warm on a shoot or if I'm filming is I use a fleece hand warmer. It's very similar to what a quarterback will wear. Your hands slide in, there's a little zipper pocket and you can put these things called hot hands or other hand warmers in there and you can have your bare hands protected from the elements. They're rainproof um, and they block wind and they keep your hands toasty warm. That's one of my number one go-tos if I'm sitting. Because if you think about it, most everything we do in the photography or film industry is hurry up and wait. You got to pack all your gear in and you get there and you start to sweat with uh, all the work you did and then you sit and you freeze. So one of the most key things in this thing, if it doesn't matter if it's sporting or whatever, when there's an activity and then there's a pause, is to layer your clothing. And the industry has perfected this polypropylene wool fleece underwear. Sometimes they'll have wool on the outside, polypropylene on the other. The key point is it wicks the moisture away. When you layer, you can increase the layers as you get more static, as you start to stop and you get colder. So what you would do is dress lightly, work to get into the area that you're setting up at your blind or your shoot or whatever you're doing, and then you would layer up and you'd be warm. One of the other ways that I counteract that is with those hand warmers I mentioned. They have toe warmers that run up to, I think, six hours. The hand warmers go 10, and they have body warmers that go up to 18 hours. They're activated by air. They're a one-time use. When you purchase them, always check the purchase date because they expire just like the food in your refrigerator. Another thing, if they feel stiff or hard, they've been used. They're either used or it's been broken, the seal's been broken to the air and they're no good anymore. So make sure they're flexible and check the date of purchase. Other hand warmers such as the old Zippo where you put lighter fluid in it and some have the little core that you light. I'm not a big fan of although they work great I just don't like the smell of them and I don't have to worry about lighter fluid filling them so I buy the ones that are one-time use and you discard them. One of the best things I found for staying warm, uh, I got turned on by a friend of mine, Wayne Pearsall, a famous archer, does a lot of outdoor stuff, and it's a gerbing heated vest. It came from the motorcycle industry is where it originated, and you wear this vest under your jacket. A perfect example, I'd have a light fleece out, I throw my vest on, the heated vest, and then I throw on my uh, breathable rain parka. Now normally you'd layer up with all these layers, that's all I need. So I turn the vest off, I hike into my area. When I'm active, I'm plenty, plenty warm. As I stop and sit up for my blind, waiting for my animals or birds to come, I activate the heated vest. And these things go up to like 120 degrees and they will keep you toasty. So you only got three light garments on and you aren't having to shed clothes and put them back on. So I highly recommend that heated vest if you have the money. One of the key things for staying warm is keeping your head warm as well as your upper chest. Most heat escapes from your collar, from your head. 
So a good hat, I actually have a rain hat that's fleece lined, that's breathable. And I find I can go to a, my widest range of temperatures with that, where if it's warm, I'm still comfortable, but if it gets cold, it keeps me warm and dry as well. One of the other things is you get these hooded uh, things that go over your head, they cover your mouthpiece, and they go down into your chest, so when you zip up your jacket, you're completely sealed. Those will keep you toasty warm as well, and they come anywhere from a thin nylon to a breathable material to a heavy fleece. And they're fantastic in extremely cold weather. One of the key things is your boots. They have many quality boots out now from leather. They even have breathable shoes that you can wear that are waterproof. So when you hike, if you create moisture in your feet, it'll wick it away, which will keep you warm. I also use those toe warmers that I told you about, I think from Hot Hands. There's different manufacturers. It's an air-activated heater with a sticky adhesive that goes on the bottom of your toes. I usually wear a little thicker sock than normal, and I put them on top of my toes. That way when I'm walking, I'm not walking on top of this heated pad, but it puts the heat in my shoe and keeps me warm as well. And those are fantastic for both wading um, as well as boots hiking through snow. As a consumer, you have a wide variety of clothing as well as technical gear to keep you warm. Remember, if you don't have the heated vests, etc., layers are key. Layer up when you get to your static location, strip down so your, your thin layers when you're working, getting there, and you're going to have a fantastic time. You'll be comfortable. And remember, the more comfortable you are, the better you can focus and you'll get that shot that we're all looking for. Once you make your way up to the Lower Klamath Wildlife Refuge, I encourage you to make your first stop the Visitor Center and Refuge Headquarters. At the center, they have a ton of information about the area, but even more valuable is a map of how to get around in Lower Klamath Wildlife Refuge and Tule Lake. To get to the Visitor Center, you need to keep traveling east on 161 and take a right at Hill Road. Down another mile or so, the Visitor Center is on the right. Once you've seen all you can at the Visitor Center, Make sure you're dressed in your warm clothing and get over to the Lower Klamath Refuge for the best shooting. When you turn on to 161 from 97, there's a slightly hidden driveway about six miles east from the junction of Highway 97. On the map you picked up at the Visitor Center, there's a red dotted line that makes its way from 161 into the refuge itself. This is the road you want to be on. Once on that road, pull over and check your gear. You're only minutes from seeing bald eagles close up, so get ready. All along the west side of this dirt road are cottonwood and willow trees. This is where you'll find bald eagles. If you don't see any, just drive slowly around the refuge and look for some of the tall trees that are scattered about. On one of our visits to the Klamath, we found that this road was closed due to nesting along that side. So it just confirms that there are eagles right along that area. So hopefully it's not during a time that you're nesting when you're visiting. So that way you can have really close access to these animals. At one point I was recording sound during the late morning and this happened. We're out in an area here where there's a whole bunch of frost-covered tuleys. These waterways are just covered with a 
quarter inch of ice, so a little bit of ice, but you can still see some uh, animals, some birds and waterfowl coming and going a little bit, not too much deterred by the ice. Oh, here, okay, here comes, here comes one now, bald eagle, majestic animal. Look at it come in. Oh my goodness. It's flying kind of low. It looks like it is probably hunting is my guess. Okay. Oh, it's, oh, oh, it's, oh, did you see that? Did you see? Oh, he, he, he came down, scooped up that little coot, killed him, and then dropped him in the water. And is, is he coming back? He's got to be coming back for him. Oh, what an exciting display. Did anybody get that? Of course not. Nobody got that on film. But exciting display of, of uh, a bald eagle coming in, grabbing food. In this case, a little coot that was swimming along the uh, waterway. Nope, yeah, coot didn't make it. He's still floating out there. Maybe the eagle will be back, and we'll, uh, we'll have our cameras trained on that in case that's the... He does come back, but what an exciting thing to see. How you, you come out here and you, you don't know what you're going to see. You're going to see all kinds of things, but raptors are the thing you're going to see here in uh, early January up here in this Lower Klamath Wildlife Refuge. Spectacular place to photograph raptors. Wow, that was exciting. That was pretty cool. All in all, the Lower Klamath Wildlife Refuge is a great place to go in the middle of winter. Dress warm and keep looking and you'll find lots of wildlife to shoot. Until next time, this is Terry Vanderheiden. Thanks for listening to the Nature Photography Podcast from imagelight.com. On the next episode of the Nature Photography Podcast, we're going to show you how to stop shooting blurry images. That's right. There are two things that can't be fixed in software after you shoot, and that's blurry images and out-of-focus images. And we're going to show you how to stop doing both of those so your images can be nice and sharp. See you next time.